drafting and recording rewarding licenses. Welcome to Cartmills in Conversation. I'm Chloe Taylor, a senior associate in the transactions team. And today I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, senior associate Kerry Fitchett. Hello. And associate Savina Wong. Hi, Chloe. It's great to be here. Yes, welcome, Kerry and Savina. So today we're going to be considering how to make licenses rewarding and the importance of recording those licenses. Licensing can be a really great way to commercialize and generate revenue from intellectual property. You'll see um, some examples in particular where it's providing small companies and non-commercial entities such as universities, for example, with a path to getting their intellectual property out to the masses without requiring them to invest in expensive manufacturing and distribution platforms. So in this way, you can see the, the opportunity for the patentee to pass some of the costs of commercialization onto the licensee whilst allowing the patentee to maintain ownership and some control. To give your intellectual property the greatest chance of success, it is important to structure your license in a way that benefits you and the product or patent. Today, Savina will be telling us about some of the contractual issues licensors and licensees should focus on, while Kerry will then be talking about one of the most under-discussed post-contractual issues, recording a license. So let's just say that I have invented a brand new pharmaceutical drug and I own the patent to it. I still want to own that patent, but I'm just a small outfit. I don't have the ability to, to manufacture. So I want to license the intellectual property rights to another company so that I can start to generate some revenue. Savina, where do I even start? Well, it's important to look at what type of license you want. As you've mentioned before, licensing is different from an assignment in that you still retain ownership and title. On the other side, an assignment is a transfer of your ownership to another person. A license allows a licensee, in this case, the pharmaceutical company you want to sell your drug to, to use the patent rights to the drug with your permission and your agreement to not sue them for use and exploitation in return for payment. There is a huge range with what you can work into a license agreement, such as the nature of the license, the duration of the license, and what territories the license applies to. Thank you, Savina. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's I think it is really important as you've done to 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 spell out that difference between assignment, which is essentially selling your rights, to licensing, which where you still retain that ownership, but you're just allowing people to use it for certain purposes. Yeah. But you mentioned there's a huge range uh what you can work into a license agreement. So let's get into some of that. What kinds of licenses are there that I can negotiate? There are two main types of licenses in the UK, um, that being one exclusive and non-exclusive. An exclusive license is defined under the UK Patents Act, section 130, subsection 1, that to mean a license from the proprietor of or applicant for a patent conferring on the licensee or on him and persons authorised by him to the exclusion of all other persons, including the proprietor or applicant, any right in respect of the invention to which the patent or application relates. 
In simpler terms, this means that if you were to grant that pharmaceutical company with an exclusive license, you yourself cannot exploit the patent within the scope of the license, or else the company could sue you for breach of contract. Really importantly, this is the fundamental element of an exclusive license. It's been confirmed by the recent 2022 Court of Appeal decision in Neurom Pharmaceuticals Limited and Generics Limited. A non-exclusive license is the opposite of that. It means that you could license it to multiple people and even exploit the rights under the patent yourself. However, if you do choose to grant a non-exclusive license, this precludes granting an exclusive license down the line if a more attractive offer does come along and the non-exclusive license is still ongoing. So we've got a, a non-exclusive license and an exclusive license. I think I've, I think sometimes I've come across uh, the term sole license. How How does that relate? to an exclusive or a non-exclusive license? Yeah, you might see the term sole license pop up now and then. And, and often in that case, you'll be dealing with a US company. A sole license is similar to an exclusive license, except the licensor, you in this case, can still use those IP rights. However, bear in mind that this term is not recognized under English law and will be characterized as a non-exclusive license. Deciding the nature of your license is really important in making the most out of your patent and structuring that license agreement. So you've convinced me. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do this properly. I'm gonna try and allocate. I'm not gonna go down the sole license route, and instead, if I decide that what I want to do is to grant an exclusive license, what do I need to include in my license agreement to make sure that that is actually reflected and effective. This is a really good point to bring up because just um, because a license purports to be an exclusive license doesn't mean that it's necessarily so. The definition of exclusive in the license agreement was examined in a 2017 decision, Oxford Nanopore Technologies Limited and Pacific Biosciences of California. The deputy judge, David Stone, outlined 10 propositions And the points that are particularly important when drafting a license is, one, identifying an exclusive license depends on a proper construction of the document or documents. More importantly, that exclusive license will be expressly so in the the contract. Circumstances in which an exclusive license will be implied will be rare if they exist at all. And secondly, as I emphasized previously, the essential element of an exclusive license is that it is a license to the exclusion of all other persons. And this includes you, the patentee or applicant. Okay. So I'm drafting my my exclusive license and I have to make sure that it's really clear from the document that it is intended to be exclusive. What if I wanted to grant multiple exclusive licenses under the one patent? Is that something that's possible? Certainly, uh, it is possible to have a plurality of exclusive licenses in respect of a single patent. While there are plenty of elements to consider, the main elements of the license you should look into to define the scope of the license are the purposes, fields, and territories of the licensee. Um, as confirmed in the Oxford and Pacific Bar Science decision I mentioned earlier, it's possible to have that plurality of exclusive licenses. 
it all depends on how you define the scope of your license. For example, in your exclusive license to party A, you can define a specific purpose for your license in that the patent to the drug should only be used for treating a certain disease, that it should only be used for commercial purposes, and that the license would only cover the UK territory. If so, that means that you could grant another exclusive license to a different party, party B, as long as it's not within the scope of party A's exclusive license. You could license it for the same treatment, for commercial purposes, but in a territory outside the UK. That would mean that you can license two exclusive licenses. The narrower the scope in your exclusive license, the more rights there are to license to other parties. So I can I can have potentially quite a few different exclusive licenses to the same same patent. Um, as you say, just making sure that I'm I'm clear about what they are and what they cover, and that they're covering um, different things. Whether that's different in terms of territory, like ge- geographically different, or perhaps for different purposes or something else. Are there any limits on the scope of an exclusive license? Yes. So each exclusive license can only be granted to one person. A license will not be exclusive if granted to a number of entities, even if they are under the same control. This scenario was tested in case law, in the case Illumina Inc. and Prometha Health. The key question before the court in that case was whether a license granted to Illumina and its affiliates, an exclusive license within the meaning of the Patents Act, and that the license was to the exclusion of all other persons. Justice Carr concluded that Illumina was not an exclusive licensee, as a license is only exclusive under Section 130, subsection 1, if it's granted to a single person although he may sub-license to persons authorised by him. A single person in this case meant a single legal person, and the licence in issue in this case did not comply with the definition of an exclusive licence because it was granted to several legal persons, namely Illumina and its affiliates. Therefore, when drafting an exclusive licensing agreement, it's really important that you are only granting it to one single person. Got it. So I can't I can't grant a license to one party plus its affiliates or subsidiaries or something like that. Um, I think that makes sense, uh, and perhaps you've kind of already hinted at it in, in your in what you've just said. But oftentimes the licensee is going to have to work with other people in order to commercialise the patent. How do we facilitate that within an exclusive license? Yeah, a great way to work around that is for the exclusive licensee to grant sub-licenses to the other party that you want to commercialise or work the product with. Um, This is possible as long as it's permitted under the licence agreement. Okay, so it's another example of a point that you have to discuss and have to make sure that you you make sure is written into the agreement so that everyone can do what they need to do in order to commercialise that patent. Yeah, correct. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Savina. I think that's really, really interesting. And we covered a lot of ground, I think, in terms of the difference between assignments and licensing and the difference between the different types of licenses, at least that we have in English law around kind of exclusive versus non-exclusive and that perhaps red herring that we see sometimes around sole licenses. Um, 
as well as some variables and license clauses such as territory and purpose. Is there anything else? And I appreciate we there's a whole lot in the license agreement that we actually haven't talked about today. So yes. we haven't talked about royalty provisions. We haven't talked about uh, enforcement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's there's a there's a whole lot that we haven't talked about, and. For listeners, this podcast would be incredibly long if we were going to try and cover everything. Definitely. <laughs> so, we've you know we've focused on that those key issues around the license grant, but just um, just thinking about it a little bit, is there anything else, Savina, that you would say is a, another kind of contractual element that you see people not thinking about, perhaps, and you'd want to make sure that they had in that agreement? Yeah, you're definitely right in that there's a plethora of issues that we haven't covered. But um, as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, a very under-discussed um, term of license agreements will be further assurances. Um, although I would say that this is more important from the licenses perspective. Um, it's a good idea to include these provisions for a licensor to cooperate with the recorder of the license on the relevant IP register or registers. Uh, Kerry, who is an expert, our resident expert in license recordals, uh, will definitely be able to expand on this in much more detail. Thank you very much, Savina. I think you've really covered some of the key contractual issues that we should be looking at when we're entering into license agreements. And it's definitely time, I think, for me to move on in my scenario. I've granted that exclusive license to the company and the company that I am now working with is thinking about what to do next and whether they might record that license. So, Kerry, bringing you in now, I wonder if you could tell me a bit about the benefits of license recordal. Yeah, sure, Chloe. Um, I mean, I think before I discuss the two main benefits, I think it needs to be made clear that these benefits are for the licensee, um, not the licensor. So uh, the first benefit is that the recordal serves as notice to third parties. Um, once that's once the interest, the licensee's interest has been entered onto the appropriate um, register, it will then prevent a third party acquiring a conflicting third party interest in the patent. The scenario I'm sort of thinking about here is when perhaps the licensor has granted an exclusive license to company A, but then goes on and grants another exclusive license to company B. If the company A hasn't recorded their interest, then company B's third party rights will take priority, provided they have no notice. So that's why it's really important to record it on the register as soon as possible. Another benefit is that the, an exclusive licensee, once recorded, will have the right to bring infringement action in its own names in, in many jurisdictions. So in many countries, um, interestingly not the UK, the exclusive licensee must be recorded on the appropriate register before it can commence legal proceedings in its own name. This is regardless of what is in the license agreement, it may say that they have that right, but in certain countries you have to have also have recorded it as well on the register. So two really, really important reasons for an exclusive licensee in particular to make sure that their rights are recorded. Yeah, thank you. I think that, like you say, those are really important reasons. You know, enforcement is, is going to be a, is a massive thing 
often with licenses and making sure that people can bring infringement actions. And then, as you say, the, the conflicting third party interests is a is a is a strange is a strange one sometimes, but it's it definitely does come up from time to time. We I know we've seen it not in this exact scenario, but but have seen it come up fairly recently. Yeah, I mean, usually when a, a company licenses its patent rights, it doesn't really it doesn't wouldn't normally then grant a conflicting license to somebody else. But you just never know, so <laughs> be careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, it's a, it's yeah. a a good protection yeah definitely and I suppose moving on to where you could do this so is it the case that license recordal is possible everywhere in every single jurisdiction or is it something that is a bit more specific and, and only happens in certain places well ha- having not recorded a license in every single country in the world I can't 100% say what the situation is I know that in Europe, um, across the board, it's possible to record licenses, and it is in the majority of non-European countries. It's also possible to record a license at the EPO while a patent application is during its regional phase. So uh, that can be quite useful to do because it will, again, that recorder will be deemed to be noticed to third parties. However, we talked a little bit about the difference between licenses and assignments. When you record a license at the EPO, once the patent grants, you will still have to record at national level in all the countries that the patent has been validated in. If you record an assignment at the EPO and there's a change in ownership, that will be carried over to the uh, national registers. But that's not the case with a with a license, and this is something that clients often get confused with. Um, there is still an advantage of recording the license at the EPO because, as I said, it gives notice to third parties. But you don't have that benefit once the patent grants. You then have to also take steps at national level as well. Thank you. That again, that idea that you're not going to that the situation is not the same for assignments and for licenses is an important mm. one for people to remember. And it's just adds one an, an extra thing for people to think about, particularly in the European patent space, when they're doing their grant validations and things that they're mm-hmm. they're thinking about. If there is a license on that European patent application, is that something that needs to be transferred through? Mm-hmm. And, and I know we're gonna we're gonna talk about some other things which might be relevant to how you do that later. But first, I just wanted to just clarify. What types of license can be recorded and whether there are any kind of record or restrictions around exclusive versus non-exclusive licenses? Yes, that's a really good question, Chloe. I mean, I think these are effectively third party rights that are being recorded on the register. Um, So it's not something that's to do necessarily. Well, obviously, it's linked to the patentee because that patentee has granted those rights. But effectively, it's it's a third party interest. So it varies considerably from country to country what will actually be reflected on the register. Most countries will indicate whether it's exclusive. Several do not. So even though you may request recordal of an exclusive license, it will not necessarily show on the register that it's exclusive. It will just mention that there is a third party interest or license recorded. But you've got to think back to what 
the benefits are for the licensee to record that interest and they are that it will prevent a, a third party acquiring a conflicting interest. So it's sufficient to do that because the there will be a, an, a, an interest registered and it will also be sufficient for the purposes of bringing infringement proceedings. Um, even though it doesn't state that it's exclusive, it's been recorded and that will be enough. So, and then that's when you look back at the license to check that that license is effectively exclusive. So it it's, can be a bit disappointing for clients that they don't get this nice big recordal regist registration saying that they're exclusive an exclusive license, but it does the job, which is the main thing. And then going back to what uh, Savina was talking about and how that you can grant several separate exclusive licenses for the same patent, this again would not be ever reflected on the register. So if you had that plurality of exclusive licenses, you would that it would just it, it would show you could record each licensee separately, but it would not state that there is a limited scope, say to to the field of use on the register. So it's very, very limited what actually is put on the register by by certain patent officers. And there's lots of kind of differences as well with just not not just the fact that ex exclusivity isn't mentioned in many cases, but also as well, other restrictions would be that in some countries you cannot record a license until the patent has granted. So you can't record against a pending application. An example of that is Australia, where you still can't record a license until it's granted. In China, you can't record a license until the application has been published. In Japan, they call it a provisional license. They will record it, but it's provisional on the patent granting. So our advice to clients is, you know, record as soon as possible, even if it's still pending where possible to do so. Because, again, it gives that notice to third parties and the other benefits as well. Thank you, Kerry. I think we now now know why Suvina moved here from Australia, just to really start recording licenses against, uh, against <laughs> patent applications. I mean, yeah, it's a great reason to move across the, halfway across the world. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so we've got I think I think from what you've said, Kerry, I've got I've got a bit of an idea of what the answer to this question might be. But who is going to be applying for this license recordal? Yeah, that's a really good question because it seems like very obvious from what we've discussed so far that it would be the licensee because the licensee is the one that benefits from it. But actually, it's not always that straightforward because some countries and one that springs to, to mind, well, one jurisdiction that springs to mind is the EPO, where you're recording in particular an exclusive license, they will require the request to be made by both the licensor and the licensee. And it kind of makes sense in a way that there's a little bit more to do because it is an exclusive license that's being recorded. So they probably, you know, want the licensor to confirm that, that, that it is actually exclusive. So that is a requirement at the EPO. Many countries are very relaxed. They don't care who makes the request. It can be the licensor, it can be, or it can be the licensee. 
sometimes a licensor will request recordal because it's a contractual obligation under the terms of the license. But nine times out of 10, it will be the licensee who will be requesting recordal. Yeah, I think that, that point about what's in the contract is one that you're going to have to notice there. It echoes back to Savina's last point around kind of further assurance clauses and all of that kind of thing. Mm. What are those obligations and what are the possibilities as well in terms of future cooperation? People have to remember they've still got to work together. Uh, the licensor doesn't just sign the license and forget about it. They've, they've probably still got some work to do. Mm-hmm. And I... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, <laughs> you can't just sit back and wait for the wait for the money to start rolling in. And with that in mind, one of the one of the sort of other questions that I had and that you kind of started to to mention earlier was was around the evidence that you're going to need mm. in order to record a license. So, what what would you typically need? Well. You can, I mean, obviously there's going to be the commercial head license agreement that's going to be like very long-winded and have all the clauses that it needs in that Sabina's touched on. Usually it's it's not very practical to record that. You can use that for recordal purposes, but it's usually not practical and usually there's commercially sensitive parts in. So most times um, we would prepare a confirmatory license Or in some jurisdictions, they may have preferred forms that the patent office will prefer that is used. So, for example, in Japan, they have a standard bilingual form of license, which we would then use because we know that the Japanese patent office would accept that. So that is the best way of dealing with the license record list to get the parties to re-sign a short confirmatory license agreement that would meet the specific requirements of the patent office in which recordal is sought. So it might need notarization or legalization of signatures, for example. You know, there may be some requirements that certain terms of the license agreement are reflected in that confirmatory license agreement. Some patent offices are very relaxed. They don't really care as long as both parties have signed it and it states that it's exclusive or not, as the case may be. Other countries are really strict and they want to know a lot about what the head license agreement contains and and whether and and make sure that the confirmatory license reflects that as much as possible, obviously minus the commercial terms like royalties, etc. And often when drafting a license agreement, often there will be a short form template license agreement as an annex to the license agreement for the parties to consider executing further down the line when recordal takes place. Thank you, Kerry. I think that's that's really helpful. And I think, yeah, having those template licenses is something that can be really helpful. But I, I think, as you've said, it doesn't necessarily answer every question that you're going to be posed by different specific country patent offices. It can be a good starting point And then, uh, you know, it can be the agreed preferred form. But obviously, in some countries, you're going to be using something entirely different and maybe a lot more basic Obviously, that you need the further assurance clause in the license agreement to ensure that both parties, in particular the licensor, are happy to sign whatever needs to be signed to get that recordal made on the appropriate register. That's a really helpful summary of kind of, of recording licenses. And there's obviously more detail that we can always get into with these things. But 
Thank you very much, Savina, for giving an overview of some of the contractual points that we'd want to think about, and Kerry for those really that really thorough summary of you know why you're recording licenses, why it's so important to record licenses, and what it what it gives you, and also some of the limitations I think as well for recording licenses. It's not, for example, the parties are still going to need to work together over things, and you're also not going to get exactly the same level of protection in each country that you record in because this isn't something that's sort of globally harmonised in any way. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yes, Thanks for this having is us, Chloe. all we have time for today. But if any of you listening would like to ask questions, please do get in touch. So contact details for me, for Kerry, for Zuvina are all on the Cartmel's website. So thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Cartmills in Conversation. We hope you've enjoyed it and we hope you'll join us again soon.